This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. So, um, well, we're doing a pretty good job of analyzing the nature of the problem here and taking a look at how, at how, how it can go awry and how the, the net is really, in some ways, perfectly configured for that kind of, of abuse and dissemination. Um, uh, and I think abuse might be actually the right word in some cases for some of what's going on. Uh, um, let's talk about it from the positive side and think through, all right, so how, how should people, one, engage, one level, and secondly, reflect on what they see on the other. Let's, let's take them in one at a time. Let, let's assume that I have a, a legitimate concern about something that's going on in the church uh, and, um, uh, and may even want, uh, for good reason, to rally people uh, you know, uh, about, about the issue or to at least uh, engage. What are, some, what are some do's and don'ts in thinking through how to, how to go about that? One of the things is the basic principles of Matthew 18, go to the person involved first, uh, take two or three wise, spirit-led people with you, then it says go to the whole church, and that kind of a process I think is a good way to do that. Uh, I'm, I just was this morning consulting with a friend who's in a church where it turned out the pastor is doing a couple things, like he's engaging prostitutes and misusing funds, got a slush fund to pay for his trips to the local parlors and such, mm. and they discovered this about a week ago. Uh, so what they did first was they tried to go to the pastor, he wouldn't talk to them, no surprise. Uh, they took some a couple of key leaders from the church and then from the church planning organization. Uh, nothing came there, so they sent a note out via Facebook, ironically, hmm. uh, to the people at church and called them to a public meeting, invited the pastor to be there. He didn't show up. Uh, and they have now, they will end up dissolving the church and start a new church, a replant. But I think the way they went about this was a good way to do it. They tried to follow those patterns. The First Timothy 5 pattern, don't entertain an accusation against an elder except on the occasion of two or three witnesses. You know, they followed that. There's absolutely a place to confront evil in the church. The church does not get a pass to say, well, let's pray and just do nothing. That is not biblical either. Mm-hmm. So, so on the one hand, there's an appropriate way to do criticism, and then there's a way that that it represents a, an abuse. Um, okay, so you're you're on the other end of this now. You're not generating the uh, response, but you're seeing things and and dealing with that. Maybe the I suspect is a little easier. But uh, but how do you how do you deal with what you're picking up across the net? And what should you remember about the net as you interact with this kind of stuff? Uh, the internet has some very responsible sources in it. And so what I want to do is go to responsible sources. So in the Mars Hill thing, for example, 
I absolutely refuse to go to the blog sites, the sensationalistic blog sites, uh, because the more I go to them, the more I increase their traffic and I end up actually making them money by going there. Instead, I went to responsible sources, religious news service, Christianity Today, groups like that, who were covering the story, yes, but were doing with a, with a charitable and a trying to get both sides or all sides, as the case may be. So I think that's a key thing, is go to responsible sources. Don't increase the web track for the most sensationalistic places. And and those those sites, and I, I think you've mentioned Christian Today, Religious News Service, um, Christian Post, these, these sites are driven by people who are professional journalists who, generally speaking, are, are trying to do their job very, very yep. responsibly. And you can see that even within the context of the stories, because what the stories will inevitably do, if they're journalistically well done, is they will give you the, the both sides. They will give you the conversation that's actually taking place, as opposed to only one side of the story. Yep. Yeah, and so, like Christianity Today, which I, I really enjoy what they're doing there, they were trying every possible way as responsible journalists to talk to key people firsthand with attribution as the story developed. I think that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Ironically, I knew we were going to have this story. I saw uh, a story in the New York Times uh, on Sunday, November 9th, that uh, was characterizing World Magazine as a muckraking Christian Yes, mag- I saw the same piece this weekend. I thought, oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I know... Marvelonsky. <laughs> I, I know some other people work with the with world, and there is a piece where they're trying to be the investigative journalists. Now they are not muckraking, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that the New York Times would characterize them as a muckraking organization. That says something about the danger of being involved in this sort of thing and how re- how important it is to do it well. Yes, and and it's another indication of the way our culture is working with this you know I, I i it's it's hard for me to talk about this topic and not take a a real step back kind of get a bird's eye view on the cultural influence of what's going on and the cultural influence of what's going on it seems to me is is that we have developed a culture of it, it's kind of a combination between the gotcha journalism that you sometimes see and the ideological divides that tend to fuel our conversations where our goal is to defend a particular ideology or approach as opposed to working, if I could say this way more positively, towards some type of solution or resolution of the tensions that we find. A person takes sides, they uh, cherry pick uh, evidence. Uh, and, and in the process, they only hear one side. You know, the, the, my joke. We have a joke in our office. You know, uh, there are the people who watch Fox News, and there are the people who watch CSNBC, and we're not sure they're living on the same planet. You know, <laughs> uh, and so uh, 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 so if you look at the world through those lenses, you're looking at two very different sets of lenses and and two very different. Uh, ways of, uh, of seeing things. But when does the actual com- legitimate conversation without polemics take place between those kinds of points of view? And I think that cultural almost, uh, you know, worldwide federation of wrestling feel to the way we yep. grapple with ideas today um, doesn't lead to healthy public discourse, nor does it lead to positive challenges when, when very legitimate issues are put out on the table. That's correct. I, I got accused in the public arena uh, a while back of being a polytheist, which 
nobody who knows me would ever uh, make that charge stick. But the irony was this discernment uh, TV thing uh, put out the charge. And if you go Google Gary Brashears, it still appears on the front page. And that was some time back. Uh, and the, the, one of the things I would encourage people, as you're looking at various Internet sites, look and see, is there something there where they have contacted the person that they're charging stuff with? Because, of course, that's Matthew 18, is go to the person privately. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me with, with Mark Driscoll is when all the stuff was going around and he was being blasted on, on the, in the, all the criticism on the net, uh, he did not do the same thing back. He didn't blog about people. When he have issues with people, he'd pick up his phone and call them and talk to them. I think that's a much better way to do things. Yes, I I agree with you, and I think it's it, it it's uh, it, it to me is is a disturbing way to interact to you know just simply pump out the negative stuff and not talk directly to the people. You know, Gary, you'll identify with this. This goes way back, but when we were going through all the conversations that were happening on dispensationalism on our campus. Yep. Yep. And some of that has gone through the web. So, you know, I've been, uh, like you, uh, 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 the target, if yep. I can say it that way. Um, and I didn't do it, Daryl. I, <laughs> I know. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is how people would um, inevitably comment on motive. Yeah. Uh, why you did what you did, uh, what the circumstances were, they didn't know. They didn't have a clue, and lo and behold, um, the, the the speculation was miles off uh, in terms of the, what the, the actual dynamics were. In fact, in this last week on Facebook, I actually had to respond to someone who issued a challenge, but they they tried to protect themselves. They basically said on this very point, they said, um, uh, if um, this doctrinal statement was signed. Uh, you know, disingenuously, basically, was the deal. And if the leadership knew about it, that says something about the way these things happen and the way in which the slippery slope happens. That was the gist of what was said. That isn't quoting it, because uh, right. I'm trying to not make obvious where this was. But uh, um, And so, you know, I'm watching I'm, – I'm a part of this exchange in this Facebook um, uh, group. And so I wrote back and I said, I cannot let this one go. I have, to, I have to respond. And I said, you realize that when you say this, you not only are questioning the judgment of the person who you think has signed a doctrinal statement without integrity, but you're also questioning the integrity of the people who have oversight over that process. And I and, and you know I came back and I said you know th this was part of a long series of conversations. Everyone was very aware of what was going on. Uh, there was a there was a, a reflective process that was engaged in, et cetera. So the person wrote me back and said, you know you know why did you let this get under your skin? I did say if I didn't say this was the case, and I said yeah, but your ifs leave an impression, and the impression is left there. And, and I said, if you take the ifs away, then the whole thing shouldn't even have been mentioned. And, right. and so, you know, that's the kind of situation that you deal with. So I think that's a kind of a good specific example, if I can say it that way, of the way in which people uh, manipulate the thought space. 
if I can describe it, it that way. It really is. And to make that kind of suggestion is to come to the conclusion that there's factual reason behind it. Uh, and that just leaves the question, and that the biblical word for that is slander. Yeah. It just, such things should not happen. Well, I actually, in my response, said that basically that's what was, that was what was being done. And that's why I felt like I had to respond. Uh, And and the thing is, this person in the response admitted, I don't know any of the details. I did say if. I wasn't sure this was. But see, that's the impression. That's the, if I can say it, that's the aroma or maybe the stench that was left in the air, okay, which which then the person picked up upon and is allowed to pass on from place to place to place. It this reminds me of a joke that I often say to students uh, when I deal with this, when I talk about the rumor mill related to the seminary. And the joke goes, um, the rumor mill at Dallas Seminary is as fast as the omniscience of God, it's just not as accurate. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and, and so, the point that I'm very much trying to make is, is that you hear a lot. It's omnipresent. It's all around you, but you need to filter out that a lot of what you're hearing may not actually be true. Yeah, and that's hard to do from somebody who's watching from a distance because they have even less context than the person who's making the charges. Exactly correct. And that's why I think we should avoid that sort of stuff because when we go and read that. We're filling our minds with trash, and I just don't think that's a good and godly thing to do. Yeah, and of course, the, we haven't even raised the larger theological question here of, granted, person may think they're well-motivated, granted, they may think they're protecting the church, granted, they may think they're doing something positive, but the problem is, is that actually they are undercutting uh, the integrity and unity of the church by the way they're going about it. Not that they're raising questions. Again, I want to make that distinction. But the way they're going about it undercuts the unity of the church. And that's one of the things Ephesians 4 tells us we're supposed to work hard to protect. That's correct. That's correct. And the uh, thing that I've used as a guide in my own life is I try not to invest energy in anything that I can't make a difference in. Uh, I don't need to know all the details that's happening in such and such a church or such and such an organization if I don't have any connection with that organization. Mm-hmm. And for me to follow that is just to indulge in gossip on the recipient side, if not on the giver side. And again, Scripture tells us not to do that. I need to use my energy well to do good and godly things, which does include criticizing sin. I'm absolutely called to do that. Uh, but how we do it is critically important. Well, I, th- I think we've walked our way um, through through this uh, in, in a significant kind of way. Let's let's kind of turn the discussion a little bit, and let's talk positively about about what technology is able to do for us. And let me let me start by tackling one. I know that you work with a lot of online stuff. So do I. And I want to talk about an online experience that really changed the way I view online. It changed the way I viewed online education. Um, I uh, was asked to teach a class in Perth, Australia. Now, granted, if you know your geography, Dallas, Texas is some distance from Perth, Australia, okay? They're not exactly in the same neighborhood. Uh, and anyone who's taken that Qantas flight uh, knows what I'm talking about. So I was asked to teach this class for Perth, Australia. This was a, about three summers ago. And the way they did it, it was a hybrid. It was designed to be a hybrid class, which is that you interact over the net with your students first, and then 
you go for a week intensive class where you're meeting with them face to face because of course the criticism of online is is that you don't get to interact with the students at a personal level because you're not with them there physically uh, and this is where I learned uh, it's more complicated than that so I'm interacting for six weeks before I show up I'm asking a question a week to the students, and I'm asking them to interact with them, and I'm interacting with them individually. Fortunately, the class was of a size that could do this. It was 12 students. Yep. And so um, uh, there's nothing biblical in that number, by the way. And so, uh, and so I'm interacting with 12 students. One, we're in, a, in effect in a chat room in which they are both interacting with each other and they're interacting with me. And the thing that I tell people is, is that when I actually went to do that class, when I flew to Perth and walked in, into the room, I actually knew more about each student that I was interacting with, where they were coming from, what their strengths and skills and weaknesses were in dealing with the areas, and what I needed to do as a teacher interacting with them in class than I had ever had in any face-to-face -face class experience where the first day I walk in, I've got a new role and I'm calling role and I'm getting to know the students. It completely changed the way I thought about online and what technology is able to do. Yeah. Yeah, the technology adds a different dimension of interaction. And I, I don't think there's anything that's going to replace what happens in a classroom when you get a spontaneous, immediate discussion going on with full person presence. I don't think we're Gnostic. I don't think we're just minds and... and uh, Absolutely uh, agreed. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. But still, the sort of thing you're talking about, there is a chance for reflection and an engagement that happens via the chat room or by video thread. Uh, that you, so things happen there that will never happen in the classroom. Because even in an active classroom like yours or mine, uh, half the students never engage unless we call them out, and I do. That's right, and, and you've, you've made a great point that sometimes uh, the student who doesn't say a word in class because of the way the net is set up, they have to engage and step in. You do get to see them. Another thing that I sense you sometimes get in the net that you wouldn't get in a classroom is because the net seems to be so personal, you know, one-to-one, -one, even though I'm in a chat room, it's still one-to-one. -one. I, don't, I don't feel the presence of the class around me as I'm typing at my keyboard. 
you you actually get the person probably um, uh, coming out and revealing more about where they are than they would if they were in a classroom of 30 people and they're wondering, well, what are my, all my peers going to think about? Even though the irony is, as soon as they type it and put it up on the net, everyone's seeing what they're saying, but they don't think about it that way when they interact on the net, it seems like. Uh, they just say what they're thinking. And so you actually get, I would say, oftentimes a more uh, direct glimpse of the person than you tend to get in a, in a classroom setting. The piece that happens in my classrooms is I get involved very personally with students, and many of them end up showing up in my office later on for a discussion. They become extremely personal. But that same thing happens online, where there's the uh, chat room kind of thing, the discussion threads or the video threads. Uh, but then they'll go offline, and they'll send me an email or a Facebook message, private message, where they can be very, very personal and very private. So there's a lot of dimensions that can happen there with online kind of thing. The other thing that happens online education that's very helpful is the student can uh, go back and replay what I just said. When I say something that's incredibly profound, which happens about every 10 years. <laughs> or just complex. Says, yeah. <laughs> and they say, could you say that again? And in the classroom, I say, oh, I really couldn't in yeah. many cases. But, but online, they can push replay. And especially students who are slow processors or for whom English is not a first language, that can be extremely helpful for them. Yeah, and, and you make the point that one of the things that online uh, processes allow for is the student to kind of progress at their own pace, right. as opposed to being uh, locked into the whatever the progress is on the syllabus. Uh, even in areas like language, that's very, very important, because when you teach languages, you're compressing a year's worth of instruction sometimes in a semester, you're moving pretty fast, and if a student gets behind, the further you get, the behinder they get, and the worse it gets. And so it, it, become, it can become a problem in that regard. Uh, you know, I, I, what, I, what I like to say is, is that you've got to appreciate the nature of the medium that you're in, uh, that, that each medium has certain strengths and weaknesses, and you need to be aware of what they are. Uh, certain ways of doing things are going to deliver certain things well and other things poorly. And that's why I've always been a fan of the hybrid class, because I think yes. the hybrid gives you a little bit of the best of both worlds. It allows the Internet to do what it's able to do somewhat uniquely, but they also get at least a dimension of personal interaction that allows you to recover what otherwise you wouldn't get if you just um, being there at a, at a distance and having an effective virtual class. Another thing that happened through the internet, I know several people who are refugees from countries uh, where they cannot go back because of political oppression and that sort of thing. With today's technology, I know some people who are having extremely effective ministry in closed countries via some creative technological involvement that could never happen otherwise. And I am just so impressed with what technology is allowing to happen in closed countries. Uh, something like version, for example, the, which has who knows how many translations on it these days. Uh, people on cell phones in countries where there's absolutely no other gospel witness can open up their Bibles and read it, and people tell me they're doing it in large numbers. Amazing results of technology. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a, one of the great uh, benefits of what technology gives to us, because uh, you can minister to people 
from a long way away who would never be able to actually darken the door of your own school. They never would have a chance to come to Portland. They never have a chance to come to Dallas. And yet they can get at least uh, snippets of of feedback and input uh, that that are made available to them. And then the the, the irony is, is, you know, the person who ends up getting arrested in North Korea for leaving a Bible behind doesn't need to do it. I mean, you know, uh, uh, because the other amazing thing is that in most of these countries, most people do have cell phones and do know how to access these kinds of sites if they're interested in doing so and are able to do so and are even able to do so with some awareness about how to protect themselves as they do it in case the government is nervous about that access. Yeah, and it can be done through chips that can be put in cell phones. I mean, there's so many creative ways to deliver sermons or instruction. It's just amazing. But the hybrid still, I think, is the best way to do things, where there's the online connection, but then a living presence as well. That gives kind of the best of all the worlds. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, I think what all this, of course, means is that, is that the value of the specific local campus – we already alluded to this in talking about the way in which libraries are a function today um, – uh, the idea of physical, a confined physical space being the place where this kind of thing happens um, is becoming uh, less important uh, as we think about the dissemination of, of education and information. Mm-hmm. I look at the algorithms are involved in, say, a Google search or something like that. I can get some really good information on most any topic simply by a Google search. And we used to laugh at Wikipedia, but it's become a very good resource. Uh, I think it's as good a quality as Encyclopedia Britannica in many cases because of public uh, accountability for what's put on there. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, basically correct. And, and, and the amazing thing to me now is, um, is the amount of resources that you get access to. I used to do a, a class, well, I still do the class, but I used to do a class on, on Second Temple Jewish background. So that means I was taking students through Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, Mishnah, Talmud, all the first century before and after resources that inform the way we think about Judaism so we understand the context of the New Testament. Testament. And I used to have to walk into class with this huge stack of books that I would pass around to students when I, you know, here's the Apocrypha, here's the pseudepigraphical, two volumes of pseudepigrapha, here's, you know, the one volume of the Mishnah. Couldn't bring the Talmud in, that would, I would have had to have brought a cart, you know, to bring in all the volumes of, uh, of that. But the point is, is that, you know, and the, and the goal of the exercise was to have the student handle the book, see what it looked like, look inside, see what the structure of the of these books were and and give them some familiarity because I figured familiarity would breed usage that if they if it wasn't a foreign object to them then they might you know actually go and pull it off the shelf this last year that I taught was the first year I taught the course in which I didn't have to bring in a single volume everything was available on the computer I could post it up on the screen. They could see it electronically. We could. The beauty of it is we could all access the same text at the same time, read it, and process it together. You know, the advantage of that from a teaching standpoint is immense, uh, yeah. and it shows the way things have very much changed. And something as obscure as the Dead Sea Scrolls just went on the internet just recently, and anybody can go back and look at 
pictures of the original Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, that means you have to have the scholarly skills to read and to analyze what's going on. That's right. But the original sources are available, and it's just great. Now we just got to do the work to get educated so we can use them. That's exactly right. And so it, it does change very much the dynamics of the way things work and, and the possibilities that exist. And so, and, 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 and you can kind of read this in the way we're interacting with each other. So the, to, to the naysayers who sometimes say that the introduction of technology takes us out of the classroom, uh, removes the personal dimension, that kind of thing, that, that I think is an oversimplified uh, right. negative analysis of what actually is going on. Yeah, we have a Portland mythology of a guy sitting in his basement of his mother's house blogging around. And those people exist for sure. But the other reality is the competent uh, church leader who now has access to incredible resources to take up the work of the church to a whole different level if they have the education and ability to use that material wisely and well. You know, it, it's funny uh, how this works. I, I, I was doing a historical Jesus class this weekend. It meets at my house on Friday evenings from 7 to 10, and we're all gathered around the tables, 18 students in the class. And I had a Latin American student who is obviously here working in a second language, has made the effort to come, and he was sharing with the class his, his, his fear of having come here, having learned what he's learned, having had the access to the resources that he has, et cetera, and going back and plunging into ministry and being separated from the library, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, I feel this responsibility now of what I know I need to do in order to study a passage, and I'm not confident I'm going to be able to do it. And I looked at him and I said, if you think about this in terms of what you are, what you have access to technologically, because we our students get the Logos package as part of their uh, coming here, um, what you're able to do technologically, what you have access to, you don't have to be next to the library anymore. And I said, the the way things have changed is what used to take me two or three days to do in terms of research because I had to go to the library, pull books down the shelf, you know, actually. Access it by by hand, uh, read my way through it, etc. I said what used to take me two or three days to do, and in some cases took me hours to just get organized to do. Oh, uh, you know, figuring out what it is I had to look up and where it was in the library and where it was in the shelf, etc. Um, I said now it can take me only two or three hours. Right. And uh, and and so you have access to all this material. Um, because of what uh, technology is able to do for us. And yeah. so I said, don't despair, you know. Uh, you're really in a much better place than the person the person who graduated two or three generations ago should have had your fear, but you don't need to have it. Yeah, yeah. the technological stuff, when I go travel internationally to teach, even to fairly remote occasions, I got my little laptop computer here and with Logos and other things I have available on it, uh, I and Bible works. I've just got amazing resources. You should mention accordance as well. Okay, everybody Absolutely. got equal time. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of these things. Yeah. That are just phenomenal packages, each with their strengths, and many of us are multilingual in that sense. That's too. right. Uh, it's just and they're affordable for many people, not all, uh, and just the resources that are available. It's. But again, the responsibility to not just cite information, but to process and integrate it for wisdom, uh, the, the temptation of people to just dispense information they get off of their computer 
is still a big temptation that has to be overcome. Yeah, that's a great observation that uh, just because you have access to the information doesn't necessarily mean that information that you have is is good information. You still have to process uh, what's what's going on. I, I love to use the example of um, of Jesus's remark about being able to pass through the eye of a needle in the in the very well circulated tradition that this is some type of an allusion to a city gate that a camel actually can get through uh, if the circumstances are right. To which I go, if you'll just read the context in which the response of the disciples is what you have just said is impossible, um, then you will get the sense that a city gate can't be in the background here. And despite how well circulated that idea is, the idea probably comes from a medieval description of Jerusalem as opposed to a first century description of Jerusalem. That's where it probably arose. Um, you still have to process the background information that you get access to. You know, do these sources come from the time period involved, or do they represent views that go back that far? Or are you citing a source that's much, much later in time? And does it can, all those kinds of things still have to be done? Mm -hmm. And the, the responsibility, again, to preach and not just dispense information so that you're working for transformation in your local community, that's still there. And it's still, the in the date of downloading all kinds of sermons, the temptation is to use the intellectual resources of the web, and they're there, but we still have to take it, not just abstract teaching, but we have to leave, preach for life transformation and community enhancement. Yeah, and that's, and that's, of course, one of the values of why a, a seminary exists, is that a seminary helps you to actually put those skills together. I sometimes get the question, why, and not that this is supposed to be an ad for seminaries, but, uh, uh, but you know, why come to seminary? Why not let the church train the people for ministry in their own locations? Now, there is some contextualized training oh, yeah. that is definitely beneficial from being able to, to work in your own environment, in your own context. No one is, no one can, can uh, challenge that idea. But the flip side of it is when you go to a seminary, you actually, when you pool the resources and the expertise that's involved in the assembling of a faculty, you know, some of whom have given their life to Old Testament, some of whom have given their life to New Testament, some have given their life to systematics, some have given their life to historical theology, some have given their life to talk about how preaching actually works, you know, yep. others to Christian ed. And you put that assemblage of faculty together, there is no church in the world, I don't care how mega they are, uh, that that is able to put that kind of a combination of resources available to the student as they're going through their education and reflection, helping them develop expertise in each one of those areas. Yeah. Another resource for students, uh, for seminaries, is where school, good schools like Dallas and Western are amazing resources for current pastors to come back to and get help as well. It's not just students who get resources help. That's right, and of course the whole point of doing podcasts like this is to actually provide those kinds of resources for people, again, over the net, um, yep. so, that, so that people can get updated. I, I, you know, part of what our philosophy in doing these is to actually help a local pastor who's out of school and away from, uh, from 
the resource center, if you will, uh, keep up to date with what's going on by getting access to conversations about books and resources and topics and that kind of thing that are up to date that lets them know what's happening at the, at the thought levels in terms of various, uh, in various areas. One of the things that I keep watch on for myself is how much I'm getting caught up in the latest fad. Mm-hmm. Because of the instantaneous 24-hour news cycle of the web, the, uh, the, the, I don't know, just the temptation of the sensational or the new thing is even more involved. And I can uh, get a lot of energy wasted on the greatest new thing or the greatest new book that comes out. And again, that's our wisdom to see, is this really going to make a change or is this just the cool thing that's coming down the pipe this week? Yeah, I've got a whole uh, category in my browser toolbar. It's called Emergent. It's all the emergent websites. I don't know the last time I actually went to look at some of those uh, yeah. for, for that very kind of, of reason. And, and again, it isn't because that movement didn't have something to say or something to contribute, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all that you sometimes had the impression it was going to supply for us at the time when it when it emerged. Uh, so. Yeah. One of the things that's come out of the whole uh, Mars Hill brouhaha that we are talking about earlier, I've heard some pretty responsible people say the day of the megachurch is done. And I think, what a stupid statement. Mm -hmm. God has always worked through different kinds of churches. Mm -hmm. There are ups and downsides to any kind of church. And again, that's where the requirement that we have an educated discernment to assess what's going on and not just caught up in the latest news cycle is so very important. Yeah, and and uh, this is a whole other podcast we'll probably have to come back to because I know you are, do a lot of work in ecclesiology, oh, yeah. but uh, but I'm uh, I'm I get very disturbed at the at the sniping that takes place. This is actually very similar to the topic we were in in the middle of this podcast. It takes place between the person who's in the small church and the mega church pastor and the way they shoot at one another yep. sometimes. Oh. That's a very, very uh, bad place to be. So I, I do have a pastor friend who sends anything, anything negative that comes across the net about a megachurch, he sends my way, you know, and, and to keep me up to date on on what the latest what the latest complaints are about about the the megachurch. And uh, my response often to him is to say. But how often are these megachurches reaching people and touching people uh, and getting them to think about the gospel that, that your church is not touching and reaching? Don't forget that. Yeah. And the Internet can be a, a temptation to get involved in this kind of criticism because you can always find us some friends who are actually uh, just interested in muckraking kind mm-hmm. of things. But they're on the internet, and you can certainly gather them around. You can form a Facebook group of, of mockers, and boy, I don't want to be involved with mockers. I want to be involved with builders. You can find those on the internet as well, but choose who you search with and who you associate with on the internet just as much as you do in your local environment. That's right, and keep, keep in mind that God works through different structures in different ways. They have different strengths. I'm reminded of the, the old story I like to tell. Of. Campus Crusade doesn't do what InterVarsity does, doesn't do what Young Life does, but I'm sure glad they're all there because they're each reaching different groups of people, yep. each of whom needs to hear what, what they're about. Uh, well, uh, Gary, our, our time is, is 
disappeared. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about technology. I probably will have you back one day to talk about mega church versus small church, and we can, you know, I do another one of these that relates to that because I do know that ecclesiology is a love of yours, and you've oh, yeah. given a lot of thought to these kinds of questions and issues. But we appreciate you being a part of us, uh, the table and helping us sort our way through the technological web that now um, uh, surrounds us in our lives. And uh, so glad you could be a part of us, our, our time today. Thank you. Appreciate you, Daryl, a lot. Yeah. And we thank you for being a part of the table and look forward to having you back with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.